If you put a drop of milk in a gallon of gasoline, no one has any idea. If you put a drop of gasoline in a gallon of milk, it spoils the whole gallon. That drop of gasoline in a gallon of milk is equivalent to hiring one bad employee. Dude, you could have a hundred amazing people and you hire that one person that sucks and they can take the entire ship down, man. 400 phone calls, 15 appointments. Of those 15, seven or eight are net new. The other ones are what we call... I was learning everything I could and you just got to show up because <laughs> if you don't sell, you don't eat. The copier office equipment software managed IT industry is the most complicated operational company I've ever been exposed to. Let's go down this detour for a second because... And I was like, I don't want to adjust inventory at the end of the month. I want to be able to use my numbers to make decisions every day so I know that I have more cash flow tomorrow and I can fund the growth the way that I want to while hitting my distributions and my taxes and all the things that I need to. Ryan Tansom, I am 35 years old and I live in Lake Elmo, Minnesota. It's on the east side of the Twin Cities, almost to Wisconsin. And my business's name is Arcona, and we have in a, a program called Intentional Growth, which is a training for business owners about valuations, exits, and valuation growth. Then we also have fractional CFO services. And this entire business spawned from my journey of turning around and helping sell the family business. And that happened when I started full-time in 09, almost six years, and then we ended up selling it in uh, mid-2014. Okay. And then from there, after you sold your family business, that's when you started Arcona? Oh, I wish it was that easy. We sold and honestly, I had no idea what I was going to do. I lasted 60 days at the acquirer's firm. And then actually I went into wealth management for about 18 months, a little hot second, helped build a portfolio there, realized that I really liked money, but I did not want to be a personal wealth manager at all. But I really liked money and I found out, oh, wait, businesses are assets and a lot of people are like us. And so I had a 1.0 version of what we're doing right now called GEXP with a couple other partners and we were doing growth and exit planning that didn't, essentially that 1.0 version lasted, I don't know, about a year and a half. And then met my current partner now, which took us to the 2.0 version and we've been growing like crazy since partnered up with Pat Abbey, my partner. When would you partner up with him? I met him in 2018 at a training and uh, we were sitting next to each other. It was a five day training, like 10 hours a day. And he was sitting right next to me. At that point, I think he was about twice my age, but he just couldn't move because he was trapped the whole time. So I was telling him my story and he ended up liking it. And he, at that point, he was the director of shared services at a private equity firm. After some beers and then continuing conversation, we ended up forming Arcona in May of 2019. And is it situated like the company in Wisconsin or right next to Wisconsin? I know you said where you were, where you started, but I didn't know if it's virtual or what's your employment look like there? Yeah, man, we were completely virtual. So Pat's in Dayton, Ohio, and I am in Minnesota. The entity is in Minnesota, and the mailing address is Ohio. We should have done the entity in actual Ohio because the taxes are less, but it's, uh, we were fully virtual, and which actually helped us when COVID hit because our whole team is across the country now. And how big is your team? We had three people start today, and I think that's 10, or we're about to hire our 10th, and just 12 months ago, it was my partner and I. Wow. Is there any other metrics that might help everyone who's listening to kind of understand your business, at least the size of it? 
Right now, our business is 80% CFO service revenue and 20% training revenue, the educational product training. And we are growing very fast. And I'm trying to think of, we just finalized a strategic growth plan and we'll probably double by next year. So just kind of give you an idea, like last year when we had determined, it was the beginning of end of 2020, beginning of 2021, we decided to build out the fractional CFO services instead of partnering up with someone about it. So that was about, you know, like 14 months ago and it's just been exponential growth since. So probably about double the size of where we're at for headcount and client count next year. And you said the CFO fractional services, that's 80% of your business now. So that's what really helped you grow big time. Well, the thing is with the training and I'll unpack this story if you want. The point of the training Austin, was that I really wanted to understand what I went through with the sale of the company. And because we paid a lot of tax, we paid a lot of debt. And I was like, what What the heck happened there? I had to fire 60% of my employees. And this is back at kind of the unpack that journey a little bit more is like, I could have either either gone into private equity or you know investment banking or somewhere in the deal world, which there's a lot of money to be made there. But I didn't want to be part of the problem. And all those resources are necessary. And then there was like other things like, you know, being EOS implementer, or there's like peer groups and all these things. I'm like, you know what the big issue is that entrepreneurs don't really understand that their company is an asset, what creates value, how valuations work, what the different ways to monetize it, whether it's selling to their employees or private equity or internal transfers, or just essentially working yourself out of your job and keeping the asset for an annuity. People just don't know how that all works. So I wanted to teach people how to fish so they could like take the control back. So the reason when I partnered up with Pat, it was like, I wanted to create this training program at the highest value we possibly could. And Pat and I, it's like magic when we both get together because I'm a visionary, strategic thinker. I'm a tenacious learner. And he is like the most brilliant person I've ever met from finance and operations. And we combined both of our skill sets and it just one plus one absolutely made four. And so the training was all we were doing, Austin. That was a physical boot camp. And we'd get 10 to 15 entrepreneurs in a classroom for two days. We'd do it at universities and it'd be five grand. So we're making pretty good money. And we were scaling, we started, we created the curriculum, we were scaling up. And, you know, you're talking like between 30 and, you know, if, if everybody's paying five grand, you can make some pretty decent money in a few days. We'd have some discounts for plus ones and stuff like that and different partnerships. But the challenge was awesome that everybody that it felt like that came out of that training was like, wow, I get it. People have said like, oh, it's like the matrix. I see the zeros and ones and blah, blah, blah. But there's all these different analogies people gave. But then they would go and they would follow that up with, hey, in principle four, where you teach finance, that's how it's all done. So like now I get all this stuff. Now I actually need clarity on how to connect where I am at to where I want to go. So Austin, there's a long way of answering your question is the market pretty much demanded that we built out the CFO services because we went through this decision tree a couple of years ago. It was like, do we partner up with an affiliate? So I looked across the country, had plenty of conversations with other fractional CFO firms. And it was like, we can dive into this if you want. A lot of different business models that we didn't appreciate and weren't willing to refer anybody to. And so we kept coming back to this. And I remember saying to Pat, I'm like, man, we got like two dozen clients that want this. So we either have to do something and hand them to someone else or we're going to have to do it ourselves, but we can't just train people and then leave them dissatisfied because now that they get it, they have nowhere to go. And so we kind of just built it because the market was demanding it. And we've got a unique model that we've ended up landing on because of the combination, Austin, of training that has high, high margins and the CFO services. We can be reasonable 
with our rates and our engagements with the CFO services because they're long-term clients. And so the 80-20 is a great balance because it's this kind of the overall process where people go through the training and then get engaged in CFO services, but they don't have to do the CFO services if they don't want. So we have close to 400 people that have been through the training in the last couple of years. We don't have 400 CFO clients. We have a couple dozen now, and we'll probably double by the next year. When you're building out these CFO services, it seems like it makes sense. Like if I'm a business owner, if I'm getting near the end of my business, maybe I want to sell, or maybe I just want to learn about the financial end a little bit better. I think overall as a business owner, we kind of want to know how everything works, but you don't necessarily want to do everything, especially if you have someone specifically that can help you. But I was curious when you were trying to build out the CFO part here, how did you know the other services that you were trying to find that you were trying to outsource to? How do you know that they weren't any good? So a very good question. And I'll give you a little bit more context and background. So I went through probably three CFOs before selling our business. And just as a caveat, this is not about selling a business. And I'm going to come back to this in a sec. Well, actually, I'm going to address this right now. So I'm going to give a little bit more context. I'm going to come back to how our model works because it's all, it's kind of like a domino of logic here. And we're talking about your family business just to make sure everyone understands the difference. So you're talking about when you're trying to sell your family business. Yep. When we're trying to sell the family business that was a copier manage IT services business that was doing about 20 million in revenue, 115 employees. I'll give you a little bit more of that background. We lost a decent chunk of money in 09 because the margins of the equipment just dropped out of the industry. Thank God there was recurring revenue. About two thirds of that was recurring revenue with bank finance equipment tied in with maintenance revenue. And that's where I ended up helping turn that around from a new ERP system to the, you know, selling a couple of the locations, all that kind of stuff. So we went through a couple of CFOs, Austin, going through that journey. And now I know that they weren't actually CFOs. So what happened was now fast forward to Arcona, which is the name of our business. My old business was called Imaging Path. And so with Arcona, so let's put it this way. Pat is the most brilliant CFO I've ever met. <laughs> and so like I have the luxury of being partners with the guy that is the gold standard. And I can say that about him. He would not appreciate that. And he's too humble to say something about himself. And it's just his attention to detail and his understanding of operations is just barring on the best I've seen. So what happened was when we were going out and we were interviewing these firms, and it really has to do with the outside of the competency of a CFO and their style, then it's the business model behind them that is important. So what we saw, Austin, is that there's kind of two bookends. And if I'm holding up my arms right now, there's one end of the spectrum where the model is like, call a lot of CPA firms, their model, Austin, is to bill two and a half to three times the salary of the client, or I'm sorry, of the employee. So any CPA or CFO, their business model is bill two and a half times that person's salary. That's how it works. And that firm usually collects like two thirds of the revenue. And then the CFO or you know a CPA or whatever gets a third. In our mind, doesn't make any sense. Well, first of all, if you're actually hiring a CFO, if you do a bunch of market research, the average privately held CFO makes 302 grand in the U.S., plus, you know, bonuses and stock options, potentially, et cetera. Therefore, that salary and that load ends up going up towards, you know, 50 million plus size companies, private equity firms that there's leverage because they own a portfolio companies. So therefore, like 90% of small businesses can't afford or don't need a CFO full time. A lot of entrepreneurs are looking to make 300 grand at some point. So if you think about then tripling that hourly rate, I mean, I went through this at Imaging Path before we sold the family business. It was like, well, if we were to actually integrate a fractional CFO into the business to use them like an actual CFO, let's say it's 350 bucks an hour. I mean, you're quickly at a quarter million dollars for a part-time person. It makes no economic sense whatsoever. 
and it doesn't come with a framework or a model or any of this stuff. So that's one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum, Austin, that we saw was a lot of bookkeeping firms or like payroll firms or, you know, like small divisions of CPA firms where they have a bookkeeper or a controller. And then they say, oh, you know what? They slap a fractional CFO title on that person who might be making 90 grand or 100 grand. And they say, now we're doing CFO services, but they're not actually a CFO. So that was the big issue, Austin, that was like, that wasn't sufficient for us because the whole point of engaging with a client for CFO services is to get them to their goal. And the goal is to view the company as a financial asset, grow the value of that asset so you can have the freedom of choices to do with that company what you want long-term. And if that's not the goal and the goal is only to build the customer, which is what a lot of firms are, then who cares, right? But like we needed to take someone that was used to being up high at a bigger company, bring them down market, and we give each of those CFOs four to five clients. That's it. It's really not that complicated, but our goal is that we want to make 25% margins on this and be reasonable. And it's good for the CFO because they're excited to help people be the trusted guide to help people get towards their goals. It's good for us and it's good for the client. Yeah. Well, cool. Well, yeah, thanks for the rundown. I think that definitely helps. Uh, gives us an overall view of why you started Arconia and the background there. So how about if we go ahead back and rewind it to either you coming out of college or whatever part of your story you think would be good for us to hear as entrepreneurs? Well, some listening to some of your other shows, I'll just give you my story. So my dad, man, like he's a, just a hustler. I mean, he was starting like, so he barely graduated high school, didn't go to college for 90 days, as he would say. I ran out of beer and pizza money. And he was selling like calling cards and selling credit card machines. <laughs> you name it, man. He stumbled on the copiers. And I remember Austin, it was like when I was like nine or 10 in my favorite part. I mean, he started from zero, like one employee and a bunch of inventory. And every day I'd wait for him to come home at nine o'clock so I can hear the play by play of what happened that day. And he just full like puked it all out to me. So like business is my sport. I just love it because I just love how competitive it is. And I love the strategy. Not only was I getting that nine o'clock PM debrief, but I was starting a lawn mowing business at that time. I then throughout middle school, I sold like Cutco knives and oh my God, then in uh, college, I had so many different jobs in the family business. So I was not only helping them move all the different locations, but like there'd be nights and weekends or whatever. I was helping move copiers from one location to another or going to the shop and helping clean up the warehouse. And I mean, there was this one gig that I had where <laughs> you and I are a little bit younger, but I do remember this like before copiers were plugged into the network, it's called a meter read, Austin, where like you'd have to call, we'd have to call all of our clients. And I think when we sold, we had like, I don't know, 2,500 or 3,000 clients. Like you have to call them, get the meter read on every single copier because you build with how many clicks, how many pieces of paper people used. So like you had to manually call these people and I just get hung up on it. <laughs> it's like, can you think about this? Hey, Austin, this is Ryan from Imaging Path. I just need to figure out what your meter read. And like, and you know, as a client, you're getting called to tell a number so you can get billed. Like the overall experience is terrible. <laughs> So all of that kind of led me into becoming an entrepreneur, Austin. I will never forget when my dad was, we were in a car and he was starting to really start to feel success with the family business. And he just looked at me and he goes, if you can provide value to the world and you can sell, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And that right there was the moment I was like, okay, I get it. And then kind of prioritized everything in my life, which is I like to learn things and then I need to be able to understand how to communicate the value to other people. And that's really where the entrepreneur like DNA was just totally ingrained in me. 
With Masterclass, you can learn from the world's best minds anytime, anywhere, at your own pace. You can learn a science-based approach to the art of persuasion, selling and motivating yourself from Daniel Pink, or improve your negotiation skills from Chris Voss. Or you can even learn how to be a disruptive entrepreneur from Richard Branson. With over 150 classes from a range of world-class instructors, that thing you've always wanted to do is closer than you think. Per the suggestion of my wife, I'm actually taking a non-business masterclass right now. It's with Emily Morse, and she's teaching me how to be a better lover. I've been taking meticulous notes, so we'll see if Emily's tips come in handy tonight. Anyhow, I highly recommend you check out any of these 150 classes available on Masterclass. Get unlimited access to every one of those classes. And as a listener to this very podcast, you can get 15% off an annual membership. Go to masterclass.com slash millionaire right now. That's masterclass.com slash millionaire for 15% off Masterclass. As a business leader, you and your time are pulled in a lot of different directions. Think of tasks you hate doing. Maybe it's inbox management, maybe it's managing your calendar, or maybe it's project follow-up. Delegating those tasks that you hate could save you up to 15 hours per week. That way, you can do the things that you love. It's time to focus on your strengths and delegate your weaknesses. Belay intentionally pairs clients with virtual assistants, accounting services, and more. Belay can help you reclaim those 15 hours every week. Great leaders don't do anything alone. Find the support you need to delegate those details with Belay. Belay has been helping business leaders with staffing solutions for over a decade. And you can find that out by checking out episode 84 of our podcast, where I interviewed the founder, Brian Miles. Get the right help right now with a virtual assistant from Belay. Belay is offering an exclusive VIP offer to all of our podcast listeners. So just text STORY to 55123 to claim your VIP offer. Again, that's STORY, S-T-O-R-Y, two five five one two three. So when your dad started the company, was it called Imaging Path then? It's called Twin City Photocopy, TPC. Okay. So I guess that helps me. I was going to ask where you were born and raised too. So by the Twin Cities? <laughs> Twin Cities. And so I was born and raised in Minnesota. And the way that it actually worked is my dad, he used to work for a company called CDP, Copy Duplication Products. Got transferred to Arizona. And then that was when I was in second, third grade. He quit there, came back, and then he started a... Actually, the company we sold to is the company that he started the copier division to. He quit to start the own business and then we sold back to them after like 19 years. So we moved back to the Twin Cities when I was in third grade. Okay. So you're only in Arizona for a year? Year and a half, man. Everything with Minnesotans is high taxes and it sucks like eight months of the year, but family and the roots, man, you just, it's impossible to leave. I'd have to buy 15 houses to like move somewhere else. Did you have any brothers or sisters? I got a sister that is a year, a grade younger than me and a brother that's six years younger than me. Were they very business oriented too? My sister is a very talented, she's actually a channel marketing manager for a security operations at Center Company now. So she's business minded, more marketing focused. She had a small stint at the family business and my brother is not, not very business minded. 
And did you end up going to college, I guess, from, I mean, you told us all, you had to kind of all these odd jobs from selling Cutco knives and I guess helping your dad at some point, but like, when did you go to college if you did? And can you give us a little bit more input on what was your first job coming out? So graduated high school in 09 and then went to St. John's University. Uh, it's Northern Minnesota. It's a small privately held liberal arts college. And that is where I learned to be an adult, Austin. <laughs> it's a sort of, I say that because it's so much irony because I was not a very good student growing up. I always got like B's, but I was not excited or passionate about education. And I wasn't until I went through this whole, like I was in the family business and then what I'm doing now. So in 05, went to St. John's and I literally picked it because I was like, out of a couple of the big universities, first of all, my dad said, I'll pay for a third of your college if you go and stay, because I'm not going to pay for you to move away from us for the rest of your life. I was like, okay. So then I was like, well, if I go to a big university, I will just drown out in the sea of people. And I need a teacher to know that I'm not there to hold me accountable. <laughs> so I went to a smaller college. Then at St. John's, I had four years and I was a business entrepreneur major and a minor in theology, oddly enough. And it was a way of knocking out a minor with a liberal arts in a liberal arts college and happy to unpack that random circumstance if you want. But Throughout college in Austin, that was when, so I sold water units for, because uh, we had a water unit division where we sold water purifications to companies. I sold water units one of the summers throughout college, a couple summers where I actually did some cold calling and sold. So I was like drowning in a suit cold calling when I was like 18 or 19. And then one summer I actually traveled abroad. Here's what's crazy, man. Like I graduated and the whole world was burning to the ground. I mean, it was 09, St. John's had like a 98% placement or something like that. And all my smart buddies had zero job offers. And me as a sales guy had like 14 because like they were all for like $1,000 a month. <laughs> and so it's like I had all these job offers. And honestly, my entire MO throughout college, Austin was, you know, get to be average. And because I just was not passionate about anything because there was no why. Like, why am I doing this? Like, I just want to know why. And it was just traditional rope memory in school is not always conducive to that type of thinking. And so when I went to go graduate, I'm like, I'm just going to be in sales. I'm going to make a bunch of money selling something that hopefully is pretty interesting. And what was not interesting to me was copiers. But I got a call from the GM at the time of the family business, who was not my dad. And he called me and said, hey, we're going to launch this new solutions division selling managed print services and document management. And it's not boring copiers. And that essentially was the bait in the, in the hook that got me to go work for the family business because it was going to be something different. And I ended up going to the family business at that point instead of selling healthcare benefits. And was it any different? Because it sounds the same and boring to me as selling copiers. <laughs> I, you called it out, man. I was like three months into a territory. So I got a bunch of zip codes and I was a, oh no, I'm sorry. I got it the other direction. So I was the special, the sales engineer for the 24 copier sales reps who wanted to sell more of a solution. And honestly, awesome. Within like 60 days, I'm like, this is the same damn thing. You're just selling a solution that's also got hardware tied to it. And so then they plopped me into a territory where then actually you're going to laugh about this. So I was 21 or two and I had sold, I essentially landed one of the largest imaging path clients ever just out of pure cold calling, but they couldn't afford to finance the deal. So I missed out on president's club by like four grand or something like that, that first year, even though I only worked for five months of the year. So it was this really funny, but yeah, it was not something sexy. It was like, yeah, all of a sudden I found myself in a territory code calling for copiers and print management. Were you living at your parents' house at that point too? Oh God, no. 
I went from uh, college and then I called a high school buddy and he had a, essentially sublet a room. It was called a room, but it was like French doors, like kind of some quasi office in Minneapolis and then made all these big commissions. And I looked at my girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, when we've been together for like 16 years. And I said, do you want a ring or do you want a house? And she said, let's get a house. So we bought a house. Nice. When did you do that? That would have been right at the beginning, uh, first part of 2010. Which just like, oh, dude, just crushed it with like the timing of that. <laughs> so only after a year of sales. So you're doing well with the sales position? Oh, let's put it this way. I mean, because I know you like to talk some numbers and I, I don't have any issue with it. I made $240,000 my first year out of college selling copiers. Wow. Congrats. Base pay of 30 grand. And it's like, I still look at those tax returns and, you know, it's so funny, like no stress, just selling stuff and having no responsibility over the overall machine is a completely different experience than owning a company, driving and being responsible for every decision and, you know, quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks. I mean, ignorance is bliss sometimes, man. So what's Ryan's secrets of success for that first year of sales? Because I'm sure there's a lot of younger guys listening or maybe people just getting into sales roles that, you know, you already gave us a backstory of all the different kind of sales roles you've had. So what really worked well for you, I guess, in that first position there? The quick answer is 400 phone calls, 15 appointments, seven net news, then five proposals and 40 grand in sales every month. So 440 calls every month? 400 phone calls, 15 appointments. Of those 15, seven or eight are net new. The other ones are what we call recurring quarterly appointments with current clients. And then you got to have about five proposals. And of those five, you're probably going to close three. Austin, like that is sales, man. There's a book called Fanatical Prospecting by Jeb Blunt that is amazing, but that was not around. So I was like diving into Brian Tracy and Jeffrey Gittimore and like the university on four wheels. And it was just, honestly, man, out of pure fear, I was learning everything I could and you just got to show up (laughs) because if you don't sell, you don't eat. And so not everybody's got the stomach for it, but I'll tell you what, man, I think about the entrepreneurs that I interview on my show or the people that I meet is like, Everybody starts in sales somehow because they got to sell the vision at the first part. And then like they got to get people excited about it. So it's a great experience to learn and how to learn and just in time learning, but also to truly listen and understand what people want and care about. And there's a huge difference between, I mean, I had copier sales reps on staff. A lot of them could, you know, just like insurance or just like wealth management, they just jam stuff down your throat just because they have a quota. The truly different ones, there's a book called The Challenger Sale. And it kind of maybe this uh, directly answers your question is that book, The Challenger Sale, it said, if you can sit down with a prospect and you bring enough value by listening enough and challenging how they think, and if you walk away and they would say to themselves, holy cow, that was so valuable, Austin, I would have paid for that time. Instead of usually the typical experience is like, how do I get the last hour of my life back? Like everyone will be saying after they listen to this interview, right? <laughs> I'm wondering what the 440 calls and you doing that, but did you manage, you said some salespeople or were you actually just a salesperson too, right? Coming out of college. So I'll kind of go through the progression of the family business. So I had my own territory for, I think it was a year and a half. And that's when you made the 240K? That first year. Yep. And before we go to the rest of progression. I just want to reemphasize or anything else for you, because I think you listed off a couple of books that I think would help anybody. I'm just trying to think why we're still in that first year mindset, because I think that helps the most if you can get through that first year, then everything else kind of makes sense. But you're just saying, make sure you had the calls. I mean, did you have a system? Because this was about 12 years ago or so. There was no HubSpot automation platform. So let's be, yeah, I, I got what you're saying. There's a CRM. And this is a good topic that I think we should highlight, Austin, is that I think the last decade, because I've been in sales my whole life, the last decade, people 
in the marketing automation industry and the social ads and all the stuff that I have gone down the rabbit holes, I'm guilty and victim. I've pissed away a lot of money. It's this insane desire to avoid rejection and to get the quick sale. And guess what? We're all people. People that buy things are people. People that sell things are people. And there's a human being with a need. They need to trust the person that they're buying a product or a service from because they don't want to get screwed. And they need to somehow build that trust. And we both know that trust is lacking on every single facet of this planet right now. And so it's harder than ever than to build that trust. In my old world, so 12 years ago, let's say, for example, Austin, you'd be sitting, you were in my CRM and I got my seven zip codes and you were a target of me. I would actually call you and I'd say, is Austin there? <laughs> you'd be like, who's this? I'm like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Austin. And whatever the spiel was, it just admitting and being honest that I'm a salesperson, I'm calling because I'm trying to like whatever the value prop is that is acknowledging that you're a person that needs something potentially and I'm willing to have a long-term relationship. So the people that worked really well and what worked for me and still does is like you acknowledge that it's a person that you're building a relationship with and you care about them. And so out of all those phone calls, some of them are net news. And then you're also then nurturing the other ones. So if like Austin, I called you six months ago, then I might send you the handwritten card or I'd stop by, swing by, maybe take you out to lunch, take you to a wild game, take you golfing. And that's like the personal stuff. But then at the same time, you're inviting people to a webinar or a demo or an in-person workshop building relationship and building expertise and trust. Nowadays, there's just more tools to do that. Videos, podcasting, virtual events, whatever the heck it is, but it's all the same process, man. And so acknowledging that you're not just going to jam a sale down people's throat and then the numbers and the volume and the consistency, just like working out, the process yields the results over time. Makes sense. Were you working just like 40 hours a week too, or were you working more than that? I don't know how to answer that because... First of all, I've never had, like, technically, I've had a couple bosses right out of college, but the there's some managers at the family business, but within three years, I was helping run the whole thing. You just never shut it off, man. It's the monkey mind. I don't know if I were to answer that directly, like, and in sales, you're not always tethered to your computer, but like Jeffrey Gittimore and, and Brian Tracy and all the, like, so the 40 hours during the workday, FaceTime in front of prospects and clients is like mandatory. So as much FaceTime as you can have or phone call time that you're calling people, then do your sales planning and the follow-ups and the proposals after work. Well, duh, that kind of makes sense, right? So I don't know how much I was putting in, but it pretty much I'd say it's just been, my mind has been nonstop into entrepreneurship since the day I graduated. So it's like it never shuts off, which is why I also meditate and exercise and do all these other things now. So it's really what is productive versus what is like ideas versus what is like just task management. But I'd say just the typical, I'm going to answer it another way. I am very self-aware of my energy and my mindset, Austin. And the moment that, that I start to see a uh, law of diminishing returns, I do something to get it back. Right. I talk about that all the time. I mean, sitting down in front of a computer, like even if you just did eight to five or nine to five, I mean, after a couple hours, I would say even after an hour, sometimes I'm just like, I don't have the energy. I'm going to go do something else. You got to feel your energy of what you're doing, especially if you, what happens if you had to take all your clients you know, everyone you did at a meeting, this was again, 12 years ago, and you logged them in somewhere. And instead of doing that, when you're high energy, you can do that when you're low energy, and it's easy to do. So yeah, it's definitely that energy management and trying to figure out what makes the most sense. If you have to go work out in the middle of the day, or you need to go do something else, just you don't want to just sit in there and stare at a screen and pretend you're working versus actually getting something done. It's ridiculous, man. And, well, and look at the meat grinder of Wall Street. I mean, these spreadsheet jockeys that are getting paid or like the, the law firms or CPA firms, everybody calls them the meat grinder for a reason. <laughs> like, they just chew these people up and spit them out because they know it's not sustainable. 
I just got done interviewing Rob Dubay, he's a client of mine and at Arcona's, and he helped Gina Wickman write the 10 disciplines. And it's all about how to manage and maximize your energy. And it's just stuff that just, you're totally right. Like, you know, if you sit down, you're like, you're hot, you're in the zone and you can rip out 40 emails and it feels like effortless. And then there's other times you sit down and it's like, man, I wrote two emails and it took me 90 minutes. <laughs> like, don't do it then, right? Like, it be, and someone just, I don't know, I just kind of listen to the voice in my head and saying like, the goal is this is a marathon forever. So like, let's manage this accordingly. And so you said you were in this sales position and obviously did well by making sure you stuck to the metrics and that's what made you successful. And you did that for the first year and a half out of college. And then did you want to take us through your timeline at the company there? Sure. So, I mean, there was a lot of pressure points coming at us. At about month four, Austin, I was getting pulled into the bank and the CPA meetings with my dad. So it was like drink for the fire hose. I mean, maybe it was like six months. So I had six months of ignorance is bliss of just selling. And then I realized that we were in actually uh, some financial trouble because of the financial crisis. And that was where all the ignorance and bliss kind of disappeared, where it was like, hey, it's less about the annual income as more about saving this machine of a hundred and some employees and three locations and all the stuff that we're doing so we can create a valuable company that gives me choices long-term. So it kind of shifted. And so that's where like, it was less about me sitting as sales territory compared to let's enhance our product offering and service offering, and then deal with the competitive forces in the, in the space that the buyers became very savvy of. There still is no margin in the equipment for the most part, depending on the circumstances, but a lot of margin, in the maintenance, and then a lot of uh, competition from we call it everything that hangs off the company network. So is the copiers and the printers. Well, then it's like, well, document management, how are the documents and the information flowing across the company? Well, then you got automation of AP and HR and automation of purchase order systems. There was software we started bolting on top of our solutions. So I naturally went from being in that territory, like, hey, I'm going to build out this, the document management software side of the business. So that's where then I went and spent about a year, year and a half of selecting the products and services and then figuring out how to price them, how to build out the team, a lot of challenges and failures in that. But the overall sales approach to the marketplace made sense because like, oh, I'm buying all these copiers and these printers, but then I need to figure out like law firms, they'll scan stuff and bill it to the client contract or whatever it might be. So spent about a year and a half building that out. And that was always kind of a redheaded stepchild to the whole industry because it's necessary because it's a natural conversation. But it's not as scalable or profitable the way that that business unit operates in that industry. But at the same time, there was pressure coming at to just to go straight up. And when I say straight up is working with the CIO of a company to manage the entire technology roadmap and all of the hardware, equipment, and service. So that was what we call managed IT services. So after that year and a half of the software, I then went to build out the managed IT services and then once that was built up and kind of this whole time I'm progressing as kind of an executive building these divisions out. And then I got to the point towards the end for about a year and a half, I was the executive vice president where some of the executives reporting to me, the CFO had a dotted line to my dad. And was the company growing that whole time? I know you said at some point, even in the intro, that it seemed like your company kind of had a downfall and then a resurgence. It depends on what kind of growing or shrinking we're talking about. We had less, a couple of million dollars less in revenue a few years in but we were more profitable, which is what matters. <laughs> and so we started generating some good cash flow. We had some financing issues. So the business was good, but the bank that we were working with had a problem from the financial crisis that their problem was our problem. But essentially there was a multiple seven figure swing of EBITDA of cash flow from when I started in that first you know, year in 09 to when we ended up selling. But other than that, how about like employees and everything? Didn't you say you had to lay a lot of people off at some point? 
Yeah, man. It was a complete overhaul of almost the entire business for about six years. So as we're building out the new divisions and doing comp plan changes and like trying to sell differently and then, you know, new accounting systems. And I just, I want to say that I don't know the exact count, but what I continue to say, because I believe this is close to accurate, is it was about 50 people I laid off by the time I was 25. But there was like new hires. And so like there would be multiple misfires of hire a couple people, but then they were not the right person. Then you finally find the right person. So I think I went through three IT directors before I found the CIO that was like, now he's still a dear friend. So yeah, it was a lot of trying to get the right people in the right spots with the right attitudes, the right core values, the right culture fit. And uh, one comment that I'll make as far as culture and people, Austin, I don't know if you ever heard this, but like, because I got to this point where like we had one awesome culture, man. We went from the most toxic, disgusting culture I've ever been a part of, just negativity to, I read this book, Zappos, Delivering Happiness. And I was like, that's what I want. And we started just one person by one person building that culture. It was so fun, man. And I'll say this, that if you put a drop of milk in a gallon of gasoline, no one has any idea, right? If you put a drop of gasoline in a gallon of milk, it spoils the whole gallon. That drop of gasoline in a gallon of milk is equivalent to hiring one bad employee. Dude, you could have a hundred amazing people and you hire that one person that sucks and they can take the entire ship down, man. And so like it just protecting your culture that it just makes everything else easier. So with the company, what was like the lowest point? Was it like even you coming out because you said there's still a recession, but then obviously there was, but I'm just trying to get a feel of like if the company still was not doing as well and you just came in because you did so well in your personal salary or personal sales that it seemed like it's always been good. I don't know if it's just right when you came in, things kind of started changing and that you were the main reason for that or that's what I'm just trying to figure out what happened with Imaging Path this whole time. Yes, so you can still be making your salary if you're an entrepreneur or business owner, but the company could be not healthy. So you could be, everybody could be making payroll and everybody could be fine, but the company cannot be healthy. And what creates a healthy business is sustainable, predictable, and transferable cash flow. The more sustainable, predictable, and transferable your cash flow is, the more your company's worth. And we can get to that at a later point if we want. But what happened with us, Austin, is our bank had an FDIC covenant. So they had sold a bunch of, I'm assuming just a bunch of shit real estate deals or something like that. So this president that my dad had been working with for like 16 years, handshake deal, like as good of a relationship as you can imagine, all of a sudden he has no say anymore. They have this new person that gets parachuted into the bank and they say, get rid of these clients. And that's what happened to a lot of people back then, man. And even if they were good businesses, the challenge of what we had is we were on this product called factoring. And again, I don't know how geeky we want to get here, but we did not have a normal line of credit. Normal line of credit just being like, you know, just a credit card line. I mean, essentially for the layperson, or you have a fully revolving line of credit that you use to fund your working capital. And you, so you cash in your line of credit, maybe some debt to have working capital. We didn't have any of that, Austin, because what happened was back in the early days of when my dad was scaling the business, he won the United States Postal Service and it was like a five or $7 million order. Well, the way that a distribution company works, especially if you've got products, is we had to go buy the equipment. Well, where do you go buy $5 million? How do you buy $5 million worth of Canon copiers if you have no line of credit? Right? <laughs> like It's not really easy to scale a company when you just don't have any access to financing. My dad was, like I said, he was just a sales hustler. And so what happened was we got on this program and we were on it. factoring your receivables is what it's called or financing your receivables. There's a couple of different flavors of it. 
But instead of getting a line of credit, like $1.5 million line of credit, that usually could be collateralized against your building equity or something like that. In financing receivables, you go sell your receivable to a bank. Awesome. So if I had a million dollars in purchase orders, but I had no way to buy that equipment to satisfy those purchase orders. I could go to, let's say you're my bank, Austin. I could say, Austin, here's a million dollars. You would give me 900 grand, keep a hundred grand in reserves. I would use the 900 grand to go buy a bunch of stuff. And then I collect the receivables and then I pay you off. And then you release those reserves with interest. It's this hamster wheel, Austin, that you almost can, it's like crack, man. It's like, you can almost never get off of it. It's supposedly like bridge financing to get you over like a growth stage. But what happens is, is it just breeds this bad behavior where like you literally have no financing for your business unless you're selling stuff ever. To really sum it up, we turn this entire business around without any big lines of credit. <laughs> like It's just ridiculous when I think about it. So yes, there's all these good salaries and yes, we're doing all these good things, turning the business around with new products and services, et cetera. But what happens is if we did not sell and hit our quota as a company, we couldn't make our quarter million dollar payroll every two weeks. There's more times than I can count over those five or six years where it's Tuesday, we have no money and there's 300 grand that's due for Thursday. And you literally have 48 hours to go sell shit. Otherwise you don't have any payroll. It was that stressful, man. Then you'd hit the payroll and we go, holy crap, go up to the cabin, go to the bar, <laughs> come back on Friday and do it all over again. And it's just ridiculous. And I'm being extreme here, but financing and understanding numbers is so important because I spent like six years in that misery of knowing that I had this vision, knowing the opportunity, knowing what the progress we were making, but having no way to finance our growth in a healthy way. And the bank was not willing to work with us because they were under the FDIC covenant and they were essentially not healthy and they wanted us out. So essentially it was this race to who could get healthy enough to cancel each other. So instead of focusing on growing the business and hiring people and doing things, it was all like this, you know, battle with our bank every two weeks, man. It was just exhausting. Who was the bank? I'll leave them unknown at this point. They've gone through some ownership transitions and they're a decent player in the Twin Cities. So I... <laughs> I'll leave them alone. And the president that honestly, he had no say in this because like I said, he went from the head hot show to essentially just a puppet figure. He is now passed. So poor guy. You know, this is a typical story, Austin. I mean, like you got the financiers and the, I don't know if you ever heard this phrase about a bank. Bankers, and there's some really good bankers out there. So if they're really good, they would actually chuckle with this. The other people that won't chuckle are not the good bankers, but it's like, Austin, would you like an umbrella? Oh, it's raining out. Austin, I'll take that umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> that's that give and take, but there's, and we can unpack why I think that's the dynamics. That's what it felt like, man. First impressions are everything. So if you're looking to make an impact with your online content, you need Issue, the easiest way to make your creative ideas come to life and share everywhere you want to be seen. Issue is the all-in-one platform to create and distribute beautiful digital content from marketing materials to magazines to flipbooks and brochures and more. There's no need for endless scrolling through PDFs. Issue features your creative in an easy to view way on every device. Make it once and distribute it everywhere without reformatting. Your content is already optimized for engagement and ready to share. Issue also works seamlessly with tools you already use like Canva, Dropbox, and InDesign. Not only that, but Issue helps creators, marketers, designers, and really anyone who wants to make content that stands out. And guess what? You can start using Issue for free. They also offer premium features that give a more customized experience. Get started with Issue today for free. Or if you sign up for a premium account, you'll get 50% off when you go to issue.com slash podcast. 
and use code MILLIONAIRE. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast. And use promo code MILLIONAIRE at checkout for your free account or 50% off your premium account. That's issue, I-S-S-U-U dot com slash podcast and use code MILLIONAIRE. Did you always make payroll? Never missed it. And how about the contract you said with post office? Mm -hmm. Was that just a local state or like, I didn't know how big of a sale that is comparatively, like if they have different regions, because you said that was like your biggest sale, right? For the company. Yep. So it wasn't like the whole USPS, but the way that that whole industry, the copier office equipment and IT services works is we had Valspar worldwide and the Minnesota wild and all these contracts where you would get like the corporate headquarters where you would do a lot of the installs and then you would do a lot of the maintenance. You would do all that, but then we'd have everything in our state or our region. And then let's say, Austin, you owned a copier dealer down in Florida and Valspar's got a location in Florida. We would sub it out to you, but all of Valspar calls our phone number. And then we dispatch people from another dealer and we would have an arrangement of how that pricing worked. Okay. Well, yeah, that's very interesting because it means you could get much bigger, even though it sounds like you're just in that area. You can, like you said, just some national, some regional. So, Oh, we had worldwide customers. Oh, absolutely. Like multi-billion dollar companies. Yeah. I can definitely see how it gets like even more complicated than just selling copiers. Because honestly, when you start talking about the different services and stuff, when you came out of college, I'm like, well, it sounds like the same shit to me, to be honest. It's getting more complicated in my head by the minute. Awesome. It's the most, you caught on something very interesting. So we consult with almost every single industry now from the CFO level, which means I get to see inside of all the financials of like, you name the industry inside of a company for the most part, within the privately held industry, I should say, not publicly held. The copier office equipment software managed IT industry is the most complicated operational company I've ever been exposed to. Yeah. I mean, you even saying that is a freaking mouthful. I mean, how many words is that? I lost count. Let's go down this detour for a second. Because yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I, I think it's interesting. It helps everyone understand different types of industries. This is why our business had the intrinsic value because we had, so I'm going to break this down for you. So like, let's say someone that has got like 250 employees. So 250 employees on the top end of a managed IT prospect for us. So a 250 employee company might have a couple locations and this one company had call it $2 million worth of copiers and printers and servers and computers and just shit they bought. Okay. And then you have to have a maintenance agreement for all of that stuff. So you have to anticipate Austin over the course, because a lot of our contracts, like 80% of the contracts are over 48 months. So typical is 60 months, so five years. A company would go in and, and the, you finance, the, call it the $2 million, you finance the $2 million, you could do dollar out or for fair market value. And then you wrap in all of the maintenance for all of the stuff on a per user basis. So on 250 employees, you say it's 150 bucks per employee and that covers everything. So essentially you are an actuary to say, we understand all of their print volume, all their computer needs, all their software needs, all their data and storage needs, everything, all their users, their user habits, how much support tickets we're gonna have, all of the consumables of all that stuff. We wrap all that together so we can manage 45 to 55% margins on the maintenance and about 20% margins on the equipment with the financing spread. And all the client sees is at 150 bucks per user, and that includes everything. So you say, okay, well, what happens if we have four manufacturer lines? We've got four manufacturing lines, but each manufacturer, like so Canon, Ricoh, Samsung, Lexmark, we now have, of each of those manufacturers, what, 15 different model types? 
And each of those 15 model types have like, I don't know, thousands of consumable parts and SKUs that go to the model type. And then those model types have to all tie to a contract. So if Austin, the technician goes and fixes a copier at ABC company, your labor and that toner drum and consumable has to be billed to that contract because the customer's already paying for it. And we have to bill it to that contract. Oh, and by the way, if Austin's employees also called in the IT help desk and spent, you know, five hours on the phone about a VPN issue, my sales or my IT engineer who's making a hundred grand, their time's got to be allocated to that contract. And you don't see any of that as a customer. And I guess you have to allocate that personally to try to help you track how profitable your company is. Like, I guess you could not track it, but then you don't know where your money's going and how it's being spent, right? Oh, yeah. So there's two different ways to look at that. One is the contract profitability. So is Austin as a customer profitable for imaging path? Okay, so we want to be targeting 45, 50% margins. So you have to take all of the data that I just mentioned to see if Austin's company is profitable as a client of ours. That is a different way of analyzing what is the normalized EBITDA of the entire business? So what we were trying to, I'm going to make up these numbers. These are within a reasonable range, but like, let's say we had three divisions. So copiers, and then we had managed IT and we had service. Let's say we wanted a half a million dollars in EBITDA from each. So we target the half a million dollars in EBITDA, which is then if you go a layer above that, when I say layer above, then let's say it's net income. All of the sales revenue numbers and all the products and services that we're selling and the targeted margins and the targeted comp plans and all the cost of goods all have to like plinko go down to hit that net income that we wanted. And then all three of those divisions had to then roll up into the company's normalized EBITDA that then rolls into the value of the company. It's all tied together, man. So you can't just like have a finance person over there in that corner and then like your operations person over there in that corner and the salesperson selling whatever they want. A business is one big ass machine that sells products and services and generates cash flow. And hopefully that cash flow continues to grow in a more sustainable, predictable and transferable way. And your family business there, the imaging path, were they all underneath the same entity too? If you had three yeah. different divisions or they were? We did have a separate entity that I haven't even talked about that. It was like, I don't know if it was like four or $5 million at one point. We got onto a government contract that was selling extended warranties on like servers and firewalls and stuff like that. But it was totally just like a money grab because it was easy to do. And it was not part of any of our, like most of our, I don't think any of our thousands of customers knew that we were doing that. I guess if there's anything else that while we're talking about all these details, thank you for taking the time to talk about factoring and the details of, you know, this business and how it is that complicated. I mean, is there anything else that you think we can learn before we talk about eventually like y'all selling it and what happened with that? You know, all this stuff is learned the hard way, man. And I just don't think people have to learn the hard way. <laughs> I don't know if there's anything in particular. Well, I'd say one is that I learned at a very young age that your employees are your teammates, man. I never once from the, even an early age, but for sure, like throughout this whole journey is like the dictator approach just never works, man, in leadership. How many books do we both know that work that, you know, Simon Sinek, you name it. But like when you're sitting there and you're sitting in the trenches with your employees and they know that it's hard to pay vendors, it's amazing what good people that care about each other and the big vision of the company, it's amazing what they will do to protect the group and to hold on and to help everybody out. In transparency, to a certain extent, I mean, not all transparency is good transparency, but I'd say the general purpose of it is. And so, I don't know, man, I'd say that that's one core part that helped get us through all that. And so when did y'all eventually sell Imaging Path? 2014, July 2014. Okay. Can you walk us through that process? So as we were going through getting interviewed about 17 banks, about specifically 17 banks, <laughs> 
the financing industry was so miserable at that point in like 2012, 2013. What happened, Austin, is it was this constant issue of my dad never wanted to get back in the business. And so him and I were just fighting the fight together. Together? Or were y'all like fighting against each other? No, no, no. Fight. No, no, no. Not Well, there was plenty of internal fights with us two. But when I say fighting the fight together, as in like handling all these complexities together and dividing and conquering and, you know, just trying to get past this. But my dad never got rejuvenated about the business because of the personal stuff he was going through. And I loved it. So what happens is when you have partners. What personal stuff was he going through? He had some issues from his childhood that he decided to deal with. I mean, just to the point where it's just paralyzing, we're not able to really think. He had, a, he had a long healing process he had to go through. That's his truth and his story to tell. But to the point where every business owner has, everybody's got their shit, man. And if they don't, then I'm even more skeptical than <laughs> anything else. And so when you're a solo business owner and partnership, that all shows up on the front door for the most part, because it impacts your decision of how much you want to reinvest in the company, how much energy you're willing to put in, how long you're willing to put it all in. And so my dad and I were going through this when I say fighting the fight together and a lot of internal conflict too, Austin, because it's like the typical family dynamics of father, son, it's my vision, like his, his baby, like all these things that we went back and forth with. The main issues that we kept running into is he didn't really enjoy it much anymore. And he wanted out of his role and he wanted a liquidation event. I think more so he wanted out of his role than anything while being confident that he was going to get paid fair value for the company. But we didn't have any clarity on how that worked. And I wanted to keep reinvesting Austin. So like all the cash flow we were generating, we were reinvesting to hire people, build out the managed IT services, rebrand, you name it. And if you're a growth company, you're reinvesting for growth. But if you're more of like the, hey, this is a cash cow, you're taking the distributions and the dividends. Like you only have one cash flow stream. And my dad and I, like it was like this, hey, what do we do with that? And there was no agreement. So what happened was we had this perpetual conversation of, we should sell, we should not sell, we should sell, we should not sell. And as the, you know, pretty much the key employee, key executive running the company, like at that point, so paralyzing. It's like, what are we doing and where are we going? Like, I can't just mentally deal with this. And we got to this point where it was like, you know, after all these advisor conversations and all these CPA meetings and banker meetings and attorney meetings, I didn't really know what investment banking, I for sure didn't really understand private equity or ESOPs. We just got so paralyzed and we're just like, my dad's like, I just want out, all this to be done. And so we ended up selling the business because I was like, I get it, man. After two years of trying to figure out a path forward, I get it. This is your deal. This is your lottery ticket. I'm young enough to go do something on my own. So I'm going to kind of transition from like, that was why we got to the point of like, he wanted out. This is like, we got to get out of this. Interviewing all these banks to get new financing, it was way harder than it should have been. I mean, essentially, if you didn't have money, they're not willing to lend, which is just absurd. And like, I understand a lot more about lending now and all that stuff, but you know, that's what it felt like. So we got to this point, it's like, okay, let's just sell this thing. And we didn't hire an investment banker. And what we ended up doing is which 99% of entrepreneurs know is they know who would be right to buy them. So we knew like, you know, who sells Canon, who has the suite of products and services as us, manage IT, software, et cetera. And we just started putting some teasers out. And then I started having meetings. My dad and I started having meetings with people. And then it went from like some quick conversations to an accelerated, like, I think we closed in three or four weeks, which is unheard of. But the reason, and there's a lot behind that, but same accounting systems, same products and services, it was so obvious for them because they didn't need to, there was no learning curve for them to understand the business. It was just, do you have these contracts with these customers and let's do the contract audit and like, here's a CSV file of contracts and here's a skeleton crew of our employees. Because the other person that was uh, one of the other companies that wanted to buy us wanted to keep everything. 
So the maximum purchase price came from the synergies, which I now have huge regrets about. It's not the buyer's fault. It's just kind of the nature of the deal. But there was a more value or more cash paid to us because of the back office synergies. You did mention being able to close in three or four weeks. Yeah, that's insane. I mean, I think most people want to hear it's like six months minimum. They call it the deal train for a reason. Once it leaves the station, it's very hard to stop the momentum. But it's kind of getting into the additional insights now is like, dude, your company is an asset. The more you understand what creates value and who wants that value and for what reasons. And if you understand that, that's called leverage and you have choices with eyes wide open. And we just didn't have any of that, Austin. It was like, I'm going to give an example. So my business partner in his career, he bought a company while he was running a company and bought a business. And he paid that owner to the nickel what the owner asked. That owner got about a third of the value of that business. But I can guarantee you that owner skipped to the country club and told everybody how many millions of dollars he sold that company for, not knowing that he missed out on like a lot more money. <laughs> so it's all this like, if you don't know it, you don't know it. But like, I would rather know it all and then make my choice and the ramifications with my choice than going back to the ignorance and naivety. That's uh, no wait, that's like the Christmas set. <laughs> Yeah. But I'm just saying with that, it sounded like your dad wanted it just to be done though anyway. So I guess it all just depends on your part of life too, because what happens if you're at the end of your life too? And you're like, I don't care. I hate my kids. That's their choice. Right. But the challenge is, is there was two of us and we wanted different things. This kind of goes into, you know, that I spent the next, after the, after we sell and we can take this however you want, but I love taking complex shit and making it simple, Austin. Like I love it. And I was like, okay, well, you have these infinite amount of ways to grow and scale a company and to monetize it. So no one understands it. They hate the word exit. They don't want to think about this until they're done. And then everybody ends up with a story like my dad, and then they end up on my podcast. And it's like, well, how about we don't do that? And how about we, like, obviously private equity's got a system that works. They buy companies for a value. They grow that value and sell it for more. Like you can know how much the company's worth while you're running it. And most people have zero idea that that's possible or even know how to do it or where to start. My point about bringing this up is if you create a more valuable business, not top line revenue, not gross profit, not the amount of employees, but if you focus on growing the value of your business by increasing your EBITDA, increasing your multiple by de-risking your cash flow and paying down debt, you can make a shitload of money. And the entire private equity industry knows this. And I want every privately held business owner to do it for themselves. And then if you want to step back, hire a $200,000 CEO and maintain your salary through distributions, you can do it. If you want to sell part of it to private equity or part of it or all of it to an ESOP and to your employees and keep being the CEO, or if you wanted to sell it because you hate your family and you want you hate your employees, I don't care, Austin. What I want for everybody is for them to articulate what the heck they want and why and truly being able to articulate it from the intangibles to the numbers, and then focus on growing enterprise value, and then being able to look at the numbers and saying, now that I understand all this stuff, what does this mean for, my dad's name was Corey, what does this mean for Corey's role? What does this mean for Ryan's role? What does this mean for Ryan and Corey's wealth? When do you get it and how does it work? How do you get the upside of the equity? There's a framework to think about this that doesn't have to be so complicated. And there was way more options for my dad and I than we ever would have thought. Well, it seems like you did at least some things, right? I mean, at, well, the sale, at least pinning people up against each other and not just going with one person, right? So what would you have done differently at the sale, knowing what you know now? Two ways to answer that. One is nothing because I absolutely love my life and what I'm doing now. And I get to absolutely live 
it's taken me a long time, but I've gotten to the point where I'm very happy. And like, I'm taking the hard challenges and, you know, monetizing them and helping others with it. So I wouldn't give that up for the world. But the second way to answer that, Austin, is mechanically, there's a lot of other ways that we could have built it or to build that whole thing. So if we would have focused on growing our cash flow. So first of all, there's a couple concepts that we can introduce. One is that what is the difference between a lifestyle business and being an investor and an owner of a valuable asset? One is that a lifestyle business, which is what I would argue that my dad and I had, which is you solve for annual income, which means you optimize for how much cash can you take out of this company on an annual basis through salary, distributions, and perks. And you just suck in cash out. And then you're going, okay, well then how are we, like every year it's how much money can we pull out of this company? But the flip side of that is if you're saying, I want to grow a valuable asset and play the private equity game for my own company, what is this company worth today? And let's say if I had a million dollars in cash flow, I'm in Minnesota, so you pay your 350 grand in taxes. How much do I want to take out? Let's say you take out 150 grand. We have 500 left to reinvest back into the company. Well, what are we going to reinvest with? Well, we need a new ERP system. We need to hire VP of sales and we're going to launch a new product. Don't do that unless it creates more sustainable, predictable, transferable cash flow and creates a more valuable company, period. Take the money home if you have no plan within how it's going to grow more value. And that correlation, Austin, I see very few people that have that. Because Austin, if you and I bought a quadruplex or whatever they call them, you know, like we had multifamily house and we said, okay, let's say this thing, I'm just going to try and draw a parallel here. So let's say the thing's generating 10 grand a month in cash flow. You and I, let's say we own that cash flow. You and I split the 5,000 bucks each month. Do we want that money personally or are we going to reinvest back into that asset to put in new toilets, a new HVAC system, put a new roof in because we want the building to be worth more money? If we suck the cash flow out of that building for the next 20 years, we shouldn't expect that thing to be worth millions of dollars because it's dilapidated, it's got shade carpet and it's a piece of shit, right? And so this concept, like very few people that are privately held business owners understand this or they understand it, but they don't know how to get the information. And so what my dad and I would have done differently is focus on growing that cash flow. My dad could have maintained his income and his lifestyle through distributions. And then I could have been buying it through cash flow or through bonus uh, stock appreciation rights plans through bonus structures, or we could have bought part of him out via private equity firm. The reason we would buy him out part of him is because maybe he wants a million or a couple million dollars in liquidity, but wants to keep some upside. You could have that buyout happen through me financing it through a bank, financing it through private equity, financing it through an ESOP. And this is all goes back to, it depends on what people want and why and what their financial targets are and when they need the money. And then you line that up with the business's strategic goals and what the future potential value of that company is. We just didn't have this framework to think about this stuff. So it goes back to, I want out. What's out of what? Your job, the asset. I mean, yeah, Austin, I get that call almost every week, multiple times a week. Ryan, I want out. I'm like, out of what? Your job or the asset? You know, many people call me and say, Ryan, I want out of this business that's a cash flow machine. I've got a CEO and I, I clip coupons of a million bucks a year. People don't usually call me and say, I want out of that. <laughs> they, they want out of this job that they've trapped themselves into because their lifestyle creep, they need the distributions, everything relies on them and they have no way to get out of that circumstance. So they say, I want out. And that equates to, I want out of my job and my company. And I want people to pay me millions of dollars for this headache that I don't even like. And so what do most people say after you ask them, what do they want out of? They usually look up to the ceiling going, I've never been asked. I've never been challenged like that before because they don't even know. I mean, it's crazy, man. Like people think they have to do all this. I mean, the whole business of private equity is to buy a company, have someone else run it, have them grow the value of it and sell it for you. 
Like every owner can do that if they want to, not saying that they have to, but they don't have a plan. You know, they talk about like the million, $2 million ceiling threshold that people hit. Well, here's why it's a threshold, because I don't care whether you're a distribution business, a manufacturing job shop or a consulting firm or whatever it is. There's most business models where you get to this point where if you're doing a couple million in revenue and then all of a sudden you're like, well, I'm finally as the owner able to maintain a $125,000 salary and I'm breaking even essentially. I've got to figure out how to you know jump through hoops to pay my tax bill each year. And then all of a sudden I get a consultant. The consultant goes, all you have to do is hire a GM for a hundred grand. And you're like, okay, out of what cash flow? I mean, on a million and a half or $2 million in revenue, I mean, very good chance you're barely pulling down six figures, depending on the type of business. You got people and stuff and cost of goods and all these things you got to overhead. And they're going, well, how am I supposed to get to the point where I can maintain 150 or 250 grand in distributions while affording the CFO? I'm sorry, not CFO, CEO, GM. Because like I got this client right now, two owners, and their legit goal is we want to get to the point where we can maintain a quarter million dollars in distributions while having a CEO run the business. That's their goal. And there's a plan to get there. What's the plan? Well, they got to get visibility into the financials to say how much do we have to sell, what kind of margins to, that generates, what kind of cash flow. So that way, when we hire that person at, you know, call it 17 grand a month, that we can afford that person, then it's literally just a financial plan, man, using the company's financials. And so- Well, for them, let's say specifically, just because I think that'll help anybody. Because I mean, obviously you talk to the, all these types of people, if this is the biggest issue, what's the first thing you look at to help them? So I'm going to go to kind of down a financial rabbit hole for a second, because now that we've had this long discussion, people know that I was a copier salesperson. Like I was not good at school. So like this is all learned the hard way. And I don't think there's a, you don't have to learn the hard way. And as we're about, I say that Austin, as we get into the numbers, because I learned the numbers and became passionate about it because I was so sick and tired of not having answers and having to rely on other advisors like CPA firms and bankers who have never ran a damn company. And I was like, I don't want to adjust inventory at the end of the month. I want to be able to use my numbers to make decisions every day so I know that I have more cash flow tomorrow and I can fund the growth the way that I want to while hitting my distributions and my taxes and all the things that I need to. The way to do that is, I'm just going to take this in a couple chunks and we can dive into it if you want, is your chart of accounts in your numbers and your income statement have to be built in a way that makes sense so you can get data from it. So I'm going to give you an example, compare my old business. So like someone in our industry that was doing like 80 million and they had one revenue line, Austin, for service revenue. It was called service revenue. It's like, holy shit, you have like $50 million in service revenue. How much is coming from copiers? How much is coming from printers? How much is coming from document management? How much is coming from managed IT, storage, backup? How about Canon versus Rico? Like they had no information. And then you say, well, what's the most profitable product? If you don't break your chart of accounts out in the products and services that you sell that have different attributes of margins and cash flow natures of like whether you're buying something or hiring people, breaking out your chart of accounts in a way that recognizes revenue and gives you the information that you need the right way is step one. Then you say, okay, how do we build a budget? So people might freak out with budgeting, but a budget is not an accounting exercise. It's a business plan. So if someone is listening in and their budget is, what did we spend last year? Divide by 12, add 5%. That is not a budget. That's literally setting you up to do the exact same thing as you did last year. So if you didn't do what you wanted to last year, definitely don't do that. And if you have different plans next year than you do this year, put them into the plan. And so the way that we recommend it and the best practices, Austin, is 
I'm just going to walk you through what I did in my old business almost a decade ago. It was a decade ago, actually. Well, is this the right way to do it? Absolutely. Because I didn't know if you did it right a decade ago. So that's what I'm trying to figure out, like how you would have done it now that you know what you know. Yeah, it was, it's a very good question. Yeah, because I don't want you to tell us if you, if you did it wrong. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so what do you think about that group call? That was good. It's cool because you get to see what other people are doing. They're kind of in the same stage as me. Hopefully that was helpful. Definitely. Yeah. Actually, a lot of stuff. The Upwork thing was very interesting. Oh, I appreciate you becoming a Patreon. Yeah, absolutely, man. I've been listening to your stuff. And mostly it was really just to provide a little support. And I think I'll probably go up to the next level next year because I think it's worthwhile to help support you for all the work you put in. But now that I can get down there and listen to the second parts and the calls with people, I think that's really important too. Well, I'd been kind of listening for a while. I did listen to your first Patreon call. And um, there's a couple guys in there that for what they did or what they were doing, it kind of intrigued me. And um, then I've heard a couple of the commercials or whatever that so-and-so was going to be on there. Clicked on your new episode the other day and I'm like, you know what? I'm here. I got to do this. No, I've already told you a lot of stuff uh, we've done wrong. And so... I'm going to walk you through how I started it because how, how we started it is exactly how we recommend everybody does it and still best practices. And then I'll let you know when I transition into what the best practices are that we teach and that like a normal professional services firm would do. Because this is about where to start. And the reason I want to highlight my old experience 10 years ago is because even though we had nothing and we had a lot of problems, we still were able to do this. And this is why I want to get across that anybody can do this. It's just hard work. It's not complicated. So I sat down with my sales, my VP of sales. And we said, okay, if we're doing 20 million in revenue, where's it going to come from? And so we'd look at the last 12 months and say, okay, well, we can at least gain some information from this. But then what we sat down, they call it zero-based budgeting. This is where I like, we didn't invent any of this, Austin. We're just following best practices. So like three financial statements, the monks invented double entry accounting in the 1400s and every single business, whether you're Apple or whether you're the laundromat down the road has three financial statements. They have an income statement a balance sheet, and a cash flow statement, and they all work together. And so very few people know that they all work together and why. I mean, yes, people usually look at them in a vacuum, Austin, but what happens is, and I give all these big workshop presentations, we're like, you could have your income statement. So on your income statement, I explain how these interact together, is you could have your income statement, which you sell something, and then it goes on to sales on your income statement, right? And then you buy something for cost of goods, maybe, and then it goes on to your income statement as cost of goods. But when you sell something, you might have receivables. So like in my old world, we had copiers that we had to buy and we had to wait. We had got a purchase order from the client and then we invoiced them and it took them like 30 days to get us the cash. So we sold the copier. It goes into revenue on the income statement, but that receivable goes onto the balance sheet as an asset because it's cash that's not ours. It's a receivable that will eventually end up as cash, but it's an asset sitting on the balance sheet as a receivable. The payable would be as we go buy you know, equipment and it goes on to the balance sheet as a liability. So my point is on the income statement, you have sales and cost of goods, and then it goes onto the balance sheet as receivables or payables. And then the cash flow statement, which 99% of the people don't use. I mean, like most CFOs I've interacted with barely use them. You can be growing like gangbusters and you look at your income statement, you're like, look at it, we have a million dollars in net income, but we have no cash. Why is that? It's because you can grow yourself into bankruptcy almost. I mean, you literally could grow yourself into bankruptcy. 
And that's why my dad and I got into that receivable financing kind of time back in the earlier story. Like that was how we ended up growing versus what you want to look at and the answers to why you have no cash is there's this line on the cash flow statement called net cash provided by operating activities. And every professional private equity investor or banker is going to go right in and look at that and go, how much cash is this operations, this company generating? And then that cash flow statement, all it is, is the differences, Austin, of the balance sheet from one point in time to the other. So Austin, if we wanted to look at your balance sheet on May 1st and look at it on June 1st, we'd say, did cash go up or down? The receivables go up or down. The payables go up or down. And that's what's on the cash flow statement. It's saying what changed. And so what we want to know is how much cash do we have at the end of every month? That's it. I'll give that kind of context because how you started budgeting, that's what everybody wants to know. Do I have enough cash today to fund the growth, to get my distributions and to pay my taxes and to grow a more valuable business? Well, it starts with budgeting and you start by going back to what I did with my old VP of sales or every one of our CFO clients or every company that's doing this the right way should go month by month by month said, okay, Austin, we're sitting here. Let's say it was October this year and we wanted to budget for you next year. We'd say, okay, for 2023, what sales are you going to have for all your products or services, the different line items in your chart of accounts? What sales are you going to have in January and then in February and then in March? And if you're seasonal, you're taking that into account because if you're seasonal, you can't do the divide by 12 because in my old business, 40% of our income came from the last two or three months. So you can't do the divide by 12 because if I want to know that I need enough cash in June to hire a CEO at 18 grand a month, I need to go month by month by month by month to say, what are we going to do? And then all of a sudden, like with my old world, I watch these sales managers now with our customers or my old sales manager, they own it too, because they help build it with you. And then you go to service and you say, are we going to be able to service the products or services at the margins that we anticipate and target? And then you work through the budget with them on a month by month by month basis. And then you fill in the overhead, the SGNA, and then you're trying to get to that net income and then the cash flow. Essentially, after once you have that income statement built, then you can hand it off to your internal finance lead or CPA or whatever it might be to take that balance sheet and then project because it is an accounting exercise to build to project the balance sheet forward. But then, like I said, the cash flow is just a mathematical calculation of the differences of that balance sheet. This is called three statement modeling into the future, Austin. Once you have that, you can actually add some higher level assumptions on for years two through five. And we actually integrate the enterprise value of the business, because you have normalized EBITDA in there on the income statement, you can do, you can actually assume some multiples and put enterprise value, equity value, net proceeds. And you can literally look at your company like a financial asset, just like private equity firms. So, okay, in 2026, if we do all of these strategies that we've anticipated every single month, what's going to be the cash flow? And then what are going to be the distributions and taxes? And what will be the future value of this business in five years if we do these things? It's possible. Everybody can do it. It's hard work takes a lot of time and it needs to be accurate from the foundation all the way up. But like this stuff is possible and a lot of people just don't know it's possible. I mean, it makes sense. Like maybe it's just as people having to, it's like if you haven't gone to the gym for years and realizing, you know, you probably should, like using a gym analogy, kind of like you said, once you get that momentum and start going, you see improvement and same thing with this financial aspect. And I think everyone understands how it could be helpful who's listening, at least up to this point. So yeah, I appreciate you walking through and kind of helping us out. Audio wise, I think visual wise, I'm a visual learner. So I'm sure that would help a lot more people. Like, oh, I got PowerPoints and bubble charts and all that yeah, kind of crap. <laughs> they could check out your website to figure out more, right? Agreed, Austin. And like for anybody listening in, I remember sitting there having these people in suits talk over me, be condescending. And I always thought it was me. 
And I'm like, it's just that the challenge is, is a lot of advisors do talk down to owners or expect them to know all this stuff. And dude, like we're all visionary. A lot of times we're visionaries. We see a need in the market. We have this vision of what this company can be. We just need a financial roadmap that says, how do we get there without messing it all up? And like then having a framework for decision-making. And it's so difficult to get that instead of sitting someone down and like CPA firms, they just move numbers around in boxes and say how much you owe in taxes, generally not proactive and generally too late. And when you don't have any cash and it's like, that's not helpful. And then you've got a lot of controllers or bookkeepers that their whole goal is just to reconcile the banks and make sure the payables are getting done. But then that you're not using as information to guide the decisions in the business so you can take action. So I think just words of like, hey, it's a desire that everybody wants and it's totally a legit desire and it exists. That makes sense. Well, thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I think we can all hear through your experience of why you started Arcona. And obviously, I think you again going over these examples at the end would really kind of help people out. So if people wanted to say thank you for doing the podcast or learn more information about you, what's the best way for them to reach out? Arcona.io, man. The website's got the podcast, bunch of videos. It's even got, I think, a calendar link for a call with me on there. And LinkedIn's an easy way for me to get in touch with me as well. Great. Well, I appreciate you coming on, Ryan. And like I said, walking us through all these examples, I think it definitely helped those people out who are, you know, stuck in that financial situation. Kind of like you were saying, you don't have to look at it just when you're selling. It helps you get an idea of projecting the future. And I think will help everybody have a better vision of hopefully where your company is today and where it can go. So thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Austin, man. It was a lot of fun. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. <laughs> See, I have to sleep on the couch every night too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. <laughs> Worst experience of my life. One star review. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. <laughs> oh yeah, hell yeah. Oh <laughs> uh, no, thanks guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So yeah, thank you. And I can connect you with somebody too. Okay. I have connections on that so I can help you get it custom made, dirt cheap. I'll share that with you. Look at that Patreon membership already paying off. Aww, look at that. Thanks for becoming a member. Oh, well, I gotta thank uh, my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm gonna have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. I get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit and then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it just constantly 
pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I would just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not? 